Hi, I'm Yudi Bunyamin and welcome to the Neumann Talk, a podcast where I meet past winners of the Australian Mathematical Society's BH Neumann Prize to learn about their journeys through the world of mathematics. This episode's guest is Eamon O'Brien, who is currently a professor in the Department of Mathematics at the University of Auckland. Eamon completed his bachelor's degree at the National University of Ireland, Galway. After a short stint in industry, he then moved to the other side of the world to do his PhD in Australia. His PhD thesis was awarded Approximate Accessit in 1988 meaning that it was the runner-up to the best PhD thesis in all disciplines from ANU that year. Eamon's main area of research is in algebra, specifically in group theory, and is one of New Zealand's most highly cited mathematical researchers. In 2009, he was elected as a Fellow of the Royal Society of New Zealand, and in 2020, the Society awarded him the Hector Medal. Eamon won the B.H. Neumann Prize in 1987 while he was a PhD student at the Australian National University, working under the supervision of Mike Newman. So Eamon, what do you remember of your Neumann talk? I remember the technical disaster most profoundly in the sense that you walk into a seminar room with old-fashioned transparencies, which ceased to be used around the time that probably you two were born, and you expect to be able to use an overhead projector. This predates any concept of data projectors or anything else we're talking about, an old-fashioned OHP, and it is not working for reasons which I have no recollection of in the aftermath. But my talk had been prepared using Slytech, which was the LaTeX package for preparing slides in those days, which you printed out onto overheads, and you took the overheads along with you to give the lecture. And after a few minutes of trying to resolve the difficulties with the overhead projector, one is forced to abandon that. And I have to give my talk using a whiteboard. That's what I remember most profoundly from the lecture. (laughs) I mean, that's the, you know, because this was 1987, that was the 1987 version of, you know, the computer, the projector. The computer, which doesn't connect. Indeed. And so I used the whiteboard and gave the talk on the whiteboard. And it probably was somewhat shorter as a result. It definitely was shorter as a result. So how did you adapt to that? I guess you kind of knew that the talk was going to have to be short. Yeah, I've long since taken the view that, particularly with transparencies, I could organize a talk, and I still do organize a talk, so that part of it can be dispensed with. And I probably had already learned how to think about that in the sense that if you have to physically put up a transparency, it's very easy to decide not to display that information to people if you have thought about it beforehand. And my expectation is that I did. I look back today for the first time in 30-odd years at 
the actual write-up, which I did post the talk for the Austin S. Gazette, because I still have a hard copy or I have a tech copy of it, so I could generate a PDF file. And I can see that the version written for the Gazette was quite long. My guess is that I gave a much shorter version of that. And it had enough pieces in it that pieces could have been left out. And it's something which people still should take on board that we need to be able to adapt our talks. I had a lot of problems using Beamer for a long time until I discovered that there's a skip mechanism in Beamer, which allows you to skip parts of your talk without revealing its content to the audience. So that instead of people flipping through 73 pages and displaying to the audience that they've completely miscalculated how long the talk is going to take, you can have a little button at the bottom of your page which says, skip to so-and-so piece. And once I discovered that, I was quite happy using Beamer. Before that, I maintained the use of slides, hard copy slides, because I could disguise from the audience what errors of judgment in terms of time I had made. So after that disaster, did you think you were going to win? Did you- I, I had no expectation of winning. I had no expectation given that disaster. I mean, in, in normal circumstances, I would have had a shot at it. but. I did feel that post this, it was unlikely. So when you did find out that you won, do you remember what your reaction was to that? I was pleasantly surprised. I recall that I went out with two of my colleagues who have remained colleagues of mine for a long time. We went out driving on the day off and the afternoon off. And I think I mentioned to them that it had happened. And I think that they were pleasantly surprised also. I don't remember being particularly shocked by it or anything else, but just simply not happy that it happened. That remains my view. It remained something very useful to me over the years. Because when I applied for a first job, for example, which involved lecturing, the very fact that I had received such an award was something which people viewed as a positive indicator. Yeah, that's something I find quite surprising about Neumann winners, is that regardless of whether they won in the 80s or they won very recently, it seems to be something that stays on their CV. And sometimes I wonder, is this going to help me in the future? And I guess it will. Well, I've still got the certificate on my wall with my PhD certificate and with various other certificates over the years. So to that extent, I continue to regard it as positive. It's something which I've listed on my CV. As I indicated, when I first started applying for jobs, it was very useful because people regarded it as evidence of the fact that you could present a talk. And if you don't have a great deal of teaching experience, that is an indicator of something. And it certainly was beneficial to me. I mean, as you get older, it's less important in terms of the ability to present material because you're going to have built up a record as a teacher and as a presenter of mathematics. But at an early stage, it's certainly very useful. So what do you think makes a good maths talk? What's one thing that we should all think about? I think that communication of mathematics is hard at the best of times, but it is greatly helped by being able to state clearly what the problem is that you're discussing. I think that when I look at my own career, I've been involved in lots of different kinds of mathematics in group theory and computation over the years. And the work which has attracted the most attention 
has been the work which could be summarized in a couple of sentences at most, and which could be understood by a beginning undergraduate who's done something of the subject area in which I work. I mean, a person who's done a first course in group theory could understand the outcome of my PhD thesis, for example, uh, which was, in some respects, is a misrepresentation of what my PhD thesis was about. But if you wanted the executive summary, it is there are 56,092 groups of order two to the eight, of order 256. That's the executive summary, which people take from my PhD thesis. In fact, the PhD thesis was not particularly on that topic. It was on the development of an algorithm to construct P groups, to construct groups of prime power order. And I applied it to construct the groups of order 256. And if I'm talking about presenting material, I still believe that you should be able to engage the audience by stating to them what is the problem that you're considering. If you can't identify that problem and present it at some broad level to an audience, then you're highly unlikely to connect with the audience. So I would nominate the ability to coherently identify a problem and to make that problem accessible as the first step in communicating mathematics. So, Eamon, I understand that you grew up in Ireland, which feels like the furthest place away from where you are now in New Zealand. When you were growing up in Ireland, were there any signs that you would one day become a mathematician? Um, I grew up in Sligo in the west of Ireland. I grew up in a farming community, a small farming community, by which you need to understand the distinction between small farming communities in the west of Ireland and small farming communities in Australia. One has less than 40 acres, the other has some thousands of acres. So these are very different things. But quite early on, I wanted to be an academic. And by quite early, I mean 11, 12, 13. I wanted to be an academic. And if I'm honest, I wanted to be an academic because I somehow I divined that it would allow me to travel. I have no real idea where I got this very strong notion from. I did not grow up in a particularly academic household in the sense I'm the first member of my family to go to university. So to that extent of my immediate family to go to university, it wasn't the case that it was an academic household, but it was a household which valued learning. I mean, valuing learning in the West of Ireland was something which was and remains very strong. Also, I was the youngest member of my family, and to that extent, there were no expectations of me. I could do what I wanted to do. And so pretty early on, I had a notion that I wanted to go to university, I wanted to be an academic, and I wanted to be a mathematician. Long before I understood what any of these concepts actually meant in any detail. And that remained my view. When I went to high school, you know, part of my purpose in life was to do very well. Why did I need to do very well? I needed to do very well because in order for me to get to university, I had to get a scholarship. In order to get a scholarship, I had to do twice as well as the typical person in terms of entry to university. 
If you had money, you got in on the basis of X. If you didn't have money, you got in on the basis of 2X. So it was as straightforward as that. Uh, you got in and you got a scholarship, which was more than enough to actually live on while a student. But if I didn't get the scholarship, I didn't get to university. It wasn't a case that my family wouldn't have supported me. It was simply a practical matter. They were not financially in a position to support me. And so to that extent, I went to high school with a very clear intention. I was going to do very well. I was going to get to university. And that continued. And at 16 and a half, I graduated from high school and went to university. I went to university expecting to, again, try to do extremely well and end up as an academic. By that stage, I was fairly convinced I wanted to do mathematics, but I was not confident that I was good enough to do mathematics. And it was an interesting transition in university to realize that the concerns which I had in latter years in high school were not nearly as strong within the university. That within the university, I was studying a, a few subjects and I could focus on things, whereas in high school, I was studying seven equivalent of A-levels because that was how you got on extremely well and you got enough points to get to university at twice the level which others needed. And consequently, I was very busy in my last two years in high school. I arrived in university, was studying three, four subjects and could study them in considerable detail. And I realized in my first two years that math was by far my strongest interest and that being in a, an honors math stream at university, which I went into from the beginning, where there were you know, at most 10 students around, was an extraordinarily positive experience. And I could be as good as I wished to. Uh, there were no limitations on what you could deliver within that context. If you were very good, people supported you, which was quite different than some of the experiences but in high school. And so by the time I got to university as an undergraduate, I was very confident of the fact I wanted to be an academic. And the only question at that stage was, was I going to do well enough to get into a PhD program, etc. So it sounds like there wasn't really an opportunity for you to sort of have discovered mathematics or discovered academia later in your life. If you hadn't discovered it so early, it would have never happened, it seems. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what would have happened. I mean, the reality is that... From a very early age, I wanted to be part of the academic world. And I decided, I mean, I did take a year out before starting doing a PhD, which was a very conscious decision. I took a year out just after finishing an honours degree and worked as an insurance actuary for a year, trainee actuary. I also took a year out as an undergraduate, actually, because I eventually relaxed enough at the university that I could actually enjoy the experience rather than being obsessed about academic performance, I actually became heavily involved in student union politics. I became vice president. I became acting president of the students' union. I, I was actively involved in debating. I was involved in a whole bunch of things at university uh, because eventually I got to the stage where I felt, yes, I'm quite comfortable academically. I will do fine academically while also having other activities. So in fact, I, I mean, I, I gave myself some time as an undergraduate and immediately after, to decide that this is definitely the path I wanted to pursue. And I can honestly say that a year of being a trainee actuary was enough to absolutely convince me that I was going straight back to university. 
So I guess that's what drove you back into active. It drove me back. Yeah, it drove me back. To be fair, you know, if, if I'm being completely honest about it, it was the case that I had ended up with a small amount of debt after being a student, as after being an undergraduate. And I got offered a job while waiting around for examination results and everything else. And so I was waiting for the results of my honors degree to find out, you know, had I done well enough to apply to other universities to do a PhD, et cetera. And I got offered a job at a time when I had essentially no money and a small amount of debt, and it seemed perfectly reasonable to try out and see whether or not I liked it or didn't like it. And immediately I got my results, I started the process of applying for a PhD. And in effect, I got an offer a few months later, and I just waited another six months. I waited until the year was up because I felt I should give it a shot to see, you know, was it okay? Was it not okay? And after a year, I had definitely decided I wanted to go back to academia. And I'm very happy with that decision. My mother was less thrilled with the decision in the sense that I gave up a, you know, a well-paid professional job to go off to Australia to do a PhD. So that's interesting. And I do want to ask you about why you came to Australia. But before that, I'm interested to know, since you were fairly sure from a very early age that you wanted to go into academia, I mean, 11 years old, I think not many 11 year olds, at least these days, understand what academia is. Do you think your understanding of what academia is at the time was correct? No. As I actually mentioned already, I don't think I had any real concept of what academia was all about. I somehow viewed academia, however, as a place where I could do things which would grant me pleasure, which included intellectual pursuits and which included traveling. Somehow, having grown up in the West of Ireland, from which I had not left until I reached the age of 16, the understanding which I had of academia was that academics spent their lives, as I had done, actually, gallivanting around the world, going to nice places. And somehow that was very attractive to an 11-year-old growing up in rather wet and cold west of Ireland and seemed like something very nice. The notion of doing mathematical research or the notion of doing research, I don't profess to have had the slightest understanding of. But somehow I had a view that being an academic was a nice life. And where that came from, I'm not quite sure. I read voraciously. I still read voraciously. And to that extent, I probably had some understanding of it from reading books insofar as books dealing with academics would have given you any idea of what lifestyle of a typical academic was. But I did have this notion that it would be an attractive lifestyle. And that that actually turned out to be the reality. Yeah, I must admit that one of the allures for me doing a PhD was the thought that I get to travel to conferences a bit as well. I, I think it's a, it, it was instinctual understanding on my behalf. And certainly, you know, the actual harsh reality of being an academic in terms of teaching, in terms of conducting research, in terms of all the other aspects of it, were not things that I profess to have understood the slightest thing about. By the time I had finished as an undergraduate, I had a lot more understanding of that. And when I say I took a year out to think about it, it was partly just to make sure that this was the right thing. It was partly also a reflection of the fact, as I say, that I got offered a job at a point when I could have done with some money and getting paid a salary for a year seemed like a nice way of proceeding. And it was. I came out of the year 
having no debts or anything else and having a small amount of money available to me. And that was very useful. So then you went on to do your PhD, but of all places in Australia, I mean, you would imagine someone from Ireland, there are lots of good universities in Ireland, but the UK is just next door. Why or how did it end up being Australia at ANU? You've got to go back to the early 80s, which is a long time ago. But the big thing that was happening in the early 80s was the announcement of the classification of the finite simple groups, the building blocks for groups of all kinds, and in particular, the building blocks within the area in which I work. Just for the audience, when we say groups here, this does not mean like groups of people, groups of friends. We'll probably talk about this a bit more later, but just to throw that in now. Yeah. So there are objects which capture the symmetry of objects. And as you've indicated, we'll probably talk about it a little bit more. But one of the achievements of the early 1980s was classification of fundamental building blocks for these groups, so-called finite simple groups. I was an undergraduate in Galway. Galway had a very strong tradition in group theory. And Galway's in Ireland, just for the audience. Yeah, the University College Galway, which is part of the National University of Ireland, is where I was an undergraduate. And I was a student in a department which was very heavily oriented in terms of this research in aspects of group theory. Some of the people there had very strong connections with the Australian National University where I did my PhD. For example, Sean Tobin, who was head of the department, had been a student in Manchester doing his PhD in the late 1950s, at the same time as Mike Newman, my eventual PhD supervisor, was also there. I think Mike was a couple of years later than Sean. So Mike and Sean had known one another for a very long time and actually had some common research interests as well. And another person in Galway at the time and who's still around is Ted Hurley. And Ted had been a frequent visitor to ANU and had actually collaborated with at least one member of faculty there. Had spent time on sabbatical in Galway at ANU. And so these were two close links to the ANU. But there were other factors which drove it. I mean, I, I've talked about the classification of these building blocks as a result of being in a department which had a very strong group theoretic influence, a group theory background, I think I was exposed to more group theory as an undergraduate than I might typically have been. And I realized that I very much liked it. I had pretty much the view at the end of year three as an undergraduate that I wanted to do a PhD in group theory. But because this classification had just completed, Many people took the view, which some people will still argue 40 years later, that finite group theory is dead because we know all the building blocks. So this is an argument which was being trotted out in the early 1980s very strongly. Well, you know, people have just finished this big classification project. So what's left? And the worry was that I was going to do a PhD in an area which was dying. Well, evidence suggests that that expectation turned out to be false. But as a consequence, people ask me, well, why don't you try and combine it with something else? What else are you interested in? Well, I had done, I was at the beginning of the computer age in the sense of there were computers on campus. We had made a small amount of use of them. I was interested in them. And one of the topics which came up at the time was, well, you know, for example, you could look at computational aspects of group theory, which would be 
how do you develop algorithms, persuade machines to answer math questions, to answer math questions, particularly in group theory? And that sounded very interesting to me because it would have it would combine both my interest in group theory with interest in computation, which I, I was interested in, but I had done nothing in computational group theory. I had written programs in numerical analysis in Fortran and in BASIC and other languages, fine, but I had done nothing in group theory per se. But I had also worked a little bit further on development of algorithms for statistics. So it was clear I was interested in algorithms, interested in programming, and I was interested in group theory. So putting it together, it ended up as you know, suggesting, why don't you look for places where you could pursue something in algorithmic or computational group theory? And when you look around the world in the early 80s, this was a discipline which was flourishing in a small number of places. Uh, Rutgers University in New Jersey was one of them. What was called Queen Mary College, which is now Queen Mary University of London, was the second one. Orve Teha in Aachen, which is a technical Hochschule in Aachen, was a third. And then you came to Australia and you found two centres in Australia where computational group theory was very strong. One was ANU, where Mike had been a very important contributor and developer of algorithms for group theory. And he had also had collaborators over the years who worked with him, including George Havis, who was still based in Canberra. He was working at CSIRO at the time, I believe, rather than working at ANU. But they had done a lot of nice work together, which I knew something about. And the second place was the University of Sydney where John Cannon and a whole bunch of other people had been involved in the development of Cayley, as it was then known, and the precursor, which was called, I think, Group from the 1960s. So John had done his PhD with, I believe, Tim Wall in, in Sydney, and then had helped to develop the package Cayley, or being the principal driver for the developer of the package Cayley, which has later been the precursor of Magma, which people like you may well know. And so... Australia was very much on the radar if you wanted to work within this area. And I have to say that people at Galway strongly suggested ANU to me. And that was partly because they regarded Mike as an outstanding supervisor. And secondly, that ANU in those days was a very easy, non-bureaucratic place to apply to. And every other place out of the list had problems. The US, I did not wish to go to the US as a graduate student. That was a very conscious reason driven by political views at the time. The UK, Queen Mary would have been a possibility, but it wasn't exactly flush with money. Or Aachen, I didn't really consider in the sense that it would have been difficult. I wasn't the German speaker. I could have survived there, but it didn't seem like that interesting of an option, whereas Australia was exotic. I mean, here was I. I'd, I'd been outside Ireland, I think, three times by that stage. I'd been in the US twice as an undergraduate, which had helped reinforce my views on living in the US. And I had been in, I'd worked in Europe. I'd gone off to Rotterdam and worked in factories over the summer, done things like that. So I'd been outside Ireland a few times, and I had already had some experience travel. But here, here was a possibility of going to Australia. And it really sounded very exotic. And I really mean exotic in the original meaning of that word. You know, somewhere far away, you know, exciting. 
And ANU had an excellent reputation. And as I say, Mike Newman had a superb reputation, which turned out to be completely justified as a supervisor. And the application process for ANU was very straightforward. You fill out a form, you send it off, and they say to you, we're giving you a scholarship. I remember very specifically getting the telegram from ANU, from the sole man who used to handle PhD enrollments at ANU in December of 1983. I was going to a Christmas party for my life insurance company. And on that afternoon, the telegram turned up saying you've been awarded the ANU scholarship. And to add insult to injury, when students now talk to me about, you know, where to go to do their PhD and everything else, I usually, you know, go through a long spiel about applying to a range of institutions. You know, you go for some high-quality institutions, you go for some medium ones, you go for some ones which are not so hot where you can ensure that you will get some positive responses. And yet, when it came to it, I applied to precisely one institution and I got accepted. And if I hadn't, I don't actually know that I had thought that far ahead. I had not actually thought what would happen if I did not get accepted. But I did get accepted. And then I took six months to go from then. And then I went to Canberra. And so was Australia as exotic as you thought it was going to be? Um, it was reasonably exotic, but it was exotic in terms of its wildlife, because I remember that one of Mike's research associates turns up in my office on the, not the first day that I'm there, but about five days in, and goes through the long list of potential hazards to my life in terms of spiders, snakes, etc. And I really thought it was very funny, indeed, to be given this lecture by somebody who's a very good friend of mine in the aftermath, but at this stage, be given this long lecture about all the hazards, the spiders, the snakes, etc., that I had to stay away from. Look, Australia probably wasn't nearly as exotic as I had notions of, but it certainly was far away, and it was somewhat different. Uh, I mean, it was interesting to go that far away from a country which was obsessed with history and obsessed with its background to a country which is, in terms of white population, treats itself as a new state. So to that extent, it was a very different place to be than growing up in the West of Ireland. And so you came all the way to Australia to work with Mike Newman. I have to ask, what was it like working with him as a PhD student? Um, it was a very positive experience, which really can be attested to by the fact that we have only very recently finished working on probably our 12th paper together. It's been an incredibly positive influence. It was an incredibly positive influence because Mike was one of these people who takes students where they are and works with them and helps them to develop. And that worked very well for me that 
he didn't take the view that everybody started on exactly the same plane, that everybody had exactly the same background. He instead took people, he carried on conversations to try to understand what you know, what you don't know, and then set tasks accordingly, set goals accordingly. And he was a very easy person to work with in the sense that we talked a great deal. I had the great advantage that at the time when I started, I was his only PhD student for something like a year and a half of my PhD. I had an office just opposite him. He would come into my office perhaps two or three times a day. We might have a short conversation. We very rarely had formal meetings. I mean, we did have at the beginning, but very quickly went to very short, informal conversations. We would go for morning tea together, for example. We would carry on a conversation over morning tea. We might have a conversation immediately afterwards about things which I raised or which he raised. And then, you know, he would pop in during the day or if I wanted to talk to him, I would just go and hover outside his door until he was free. And at that level, it was a very easy working relationship. And it was very easy to build up a level of confidence with him in terms of interaction with him. And he has a style of giving you feedback and giving you information, which I learned very quickly, giving you a feeling about where you were and what you were doing, which is the omission strategy, if you want to call it that. I found out very quickly, and it remains true to today, that if I gave a talk and he was not very impressed by his content, he would say nothing. If he was reasonably happy with his content, he would say so. So he transmitted information by silence rather more than by saying that was terrible. I, on occasions, wish I had inherited that talent because I had a conversation with one of my honor students yesterday with whom I was extremely unhappy about a talk which he'd given. And I'm afraid I was very clear cut to him about why I was unhappy, whereas I reflected on it afterwards, I might have been better off to have just taken it a little bit more calmly. Where Mike was wonderful was in terms of writing. I have learned so much from the man, and he remains, without any doubt, my strongest influence in terms of writing and presenting mathematics and forcing oneself to keep going. The paper we just finished in 2020, just before Christmas in 2020, is a case in point where there are various of us who are authors, and he's one of the authors. And some of us would have been quite happy to have got to a certain point and regarded the work as complete. And Mike kept asking questions which forced us to continue to simplify, to clarify, and to pick up things which we were failing to pick up. And that ability to read material, to internalize it, to force people to continue to think about it is an incredible strength which 
he certainly used very effectively in conversations with me, still continues to. On writing, I have never learned more about writing from anyone. I've never learned how to try to think about what you're saying. The most common statement he made to me when he was reading anything I wrote was, what did you mean by this? And I would tell him what I meant by this. And then his response would be, well, why don't you say that? And it's a technique which I've adopted over the years and which I actually still use now because it's highly effective in terms of forcing you to articulate what it is you're trying to say and then asking you, well, why haven't you said that as distinct from writing down nonsense? And he's an expert at looking at documents, asking questions about them, forcing people to rethink what they've said. So my experiences of him as a supervisor were outstanding. He was generous beyond belief. He was very easy to engage with. He had lots of time. I mean, it was helped greatly by the fact that he had a full-time research position in the facility and in the Institute of Advanced Studies. And to that extent, he had fewer pressures than the typical academic would have. But he was very generous with his time and he remained very generous with his ideas. And we interacted very well together. I came back to ANU a couple of years after leaving as a research fellow. And I spent five years at ANU as a research fellow, working a lot with him, not exclusively with him at that stage, but certainly continuing to engage with him. And as I said, over the 30 years, we've written more than a dozen papers together. One of the things I can honestly state is I can pick up those papers and I can start reading them and I understand what I've written. Whereas I can pick up other papers which I've written at the same time and I'm not always so clear as to what I intended. And that comes from being forced to write well. And I wish that more people would bother to learn how to write well and not to regard it as not important. You talk about communication. I think writing as well as the ability to present mathematics, but writing mathematics is just as important as the ability to communicate. So earlier on, we mentioned group theory, and that is the broad area where your research is in. So the way we like to ask this question is, if not you, but if I were at the pub speaking to a random person and they asked me, what does Eamon do? What's Eamon's research about? What would you like me to tell them? Uh, it's a tricky question to answer, as you well know. I think what I might try to do, what I would suggest you might try to do, is to draw them some basic pictures on your bear mat, such as a triangle or a square, for example, and discuss with them the notion of symmetry associated with that object. And if I take a square, for example, how do I retain the property of being a square while performing symmetry at some level on the object? And I would find it easier to draw the picture than I would to actually articulate it without any accompanying writing. I would 
then perhaps try to explain what the symmetries associated with the square are, because they're very easy. They're simply reflections and rotations associated with the square. And you can draw those, and anybody who has the slightest understanding of the object will understand what we're doing in terms of those. Simply with a triangle. I mean, you can even more readily with a triangle explain to people what the symmetries associated with that object are, which reflect or retain the original property. And from there, what I would talk about is what happens if I actually do two of these reflections or rotations one after another? What's the impact of it? To that extent, I would end up talking about symmetry and about the fact that I want to classify objects often up to a notion of the symmetries associated with them. And by the notion of doing two or three of the symmetries associated in sequence, I could explain to people the notion of composition, the notion of multiplication of symmetries. And from there, I could end up fairly readily with the notion of taking a set of these symmetries and observe that any of them that you multiply together will give you another one, etc. So you begin to get to the stage where associated with a very concrete object, you have a notion of symmetry, you have a notion of a set of symmetries, and that's how I would get to the point of talking about a group. I think then I would want to broaden the discussion a little bit towards, for example, I mean, something which I often talk to people about is the notion of molecular structure and the notion of symmetries associated with more complex objects and about how I might wish to classify such objects up to the notion of symmetry and up to the notion of the group of symmetry associated with them. So that people realize that it isn't just simply a completely abstract, nonsensical tool, but is actually important in terms of potential applications. And that's how I would get people to the stage of thinking about a group. Thinking about the rest of it is actually easier in many respects. Often, I will explain to people that really what motivates me is that I'm interested in studying the resulting group of symmetries, which in the case of a square is very straightforward to describe. In the case of a triangle, I can list them all. So there's no particular problem. But if I take a much larger object and I have a group of symmetries associated with it, and now I want to understand more about that as an abstract object. How do I persuade a computer to help me to answer such questions? And for me, the challenge is to end up developing practical tools which I can implement on a machine and apply to answer problems which at least some mathematicians are interested in knowing the outcome of. And I think here we again get back to the point we were making earlier, that to illustrate these things, having things as concrete as possible and as straightforward as possible is very important. That If you talk about a set being finite, that people can well understand that you want to be able to actually know how many elements are in the set and that you want to be able to decide membership in the set. These are not completely esoteric topics. These are topics which people can understand at a broad level. So I think that's how I would try to approach it. Inevitably, the question would be, well, who cares? I mean, that's inevitably the question which ends up. And uh, 
for that, that's a, a separate philosophical question which you've got to try and argue. And again, I do argue, but I do argue it, and I could offer you advice on how to answer it, but I'm afraid that I often borrow from number theory, I often borrow from coding theory to justify some of what I do rather more frequently than I do directly from group theory. I mean, when I'm asked to justify mathematics to people, I would often take out my credit card. I will often take out a CD. I would often talk about your iPod. I will often do technology as justification because I think that it's easier to connect with people about such things. And I think CSV numbers, et cetera, help people to their pin. Why does their pin work? Why does a whole host of things on the network? These are all things which I'm afraid that I borrow. And to that extent, I'm not really answering the original question as to why what I do is so important. I, I mean, what I do is, is important in terms of underpinning quite a lot of this stuff, but the direct application is a little bit to the side. Okay, that's given me a good way to explain at the pub what you do. I might even, I mean, usually bar mats are square, right? So yes. I don't think you even need to draw, you just pick it up and rotate it around. Absolutely. And I do think that people understand that. And I think that people can well understand symmetry as a concept of importance and use, and that you may well want to classify objects up to symmetry associated with them. I don't think that that's too far away from what people can cope with and people can deal with. So... When we talk about, say, the classification of the finite simple groups, is it fair to say that sort of that was aiming to understand all the symmetries that are possible in the world? I'm not sure I would take that view. I mean, the analogy, but it's it's not a very appropriate analogy, is with knowledge of primes. That if you give me a large integer and I want to, at some level, understand the integer, one way of doing that is to look at the primes which turn up in it and their multiplicity. So I can write 12 as 2 squared times 3, for example, and I can write 30 as 2 times 3 times 5. So that I can express these objects in terms of small pieces. And there's an immediate correspondence between a number and its prime factors once you know about the multiplicity in which they occur, everything is unique. That analogy works okay for abelian structures or commutative structures, but it doesn't work when you come to group theory, because when you come to group theory, already when you talk about groups which contain six elements, you have the same building blocks for the groups of order six, the groups which actually contain six elements. If you go back to talking about a triangle, the group of symmetries in the triangle, that's exactly what one of these groups is, S3. And so that's one group of order six, and there's another group of order six, which is just a cyclic group of order six generated by an element which, whose six powers the identity. These two groups have the same building blocks, but they're not in any sense the same. From a mathematical point of view, one is abelian and one is non-abelian. So they're very clearly different, but their structure is very different. So it isn't the case that by virtue of knowing the building blocks that we know how all finite groups can be put together. But it is the case 
that we have one component for the building. The second component is how, how we merge the building blocks together. There's the groups of order six illustrated in, in one way, in the sense that what's going on in one context from a mathematical point of view is a so-called direct product. In the other case, it's a so-called semi-direct product. So there's a mathematical underpinning for the distinction between the two groups of order six, which doesn't turn up in the case of numbers. So I don't actually buy the fact that what people were looking for was to have a complete understanding of all group structure by virtue of knowing the building blocks. What they were hoping was that they knew one component of the building blocks. And then the question of how they're glued together is a very separate question, a very hard question is to understand all the ways in which it can be put together. But I do think that it was a stunning achievement to get to the stage where we do know all the building blocks. And 40 years after people said that the classification was complete, some of the work is still being written up in the final form. I mean, there's been a major revision project to try to deal with the classification of finite simple groups and to present it in a complete and coherent manner. And that writing project is still going on, being published in volumes of the American Math Society. So we've learned an awful lot from it. And lots of interesting results have come out of knowing the building blocks. Because often problems can be taken, which are problems about arbitrary groups, and which can be reduced to problems about the building blocks. So that it works that way down, that finite groups are reduced to their building blocks, and we can now solve the problem about the building blocks. However, knowing the building blocks doesn't give you all the finite groups. So it's a one-way process, a reduction process downwards from all finite groups of a given order to certain building blocks. Then you answer the question about the building blocks, and hence you know the answer for all of the groups of a given order. But you don't necessarily have a listing of all of the groups of a given order just because you know the building blocks. So your PhD thesis is entitled The Groups of Order Dividing 256. And even to me, it sounds like, so you spent your whole PhD dealing with 256? <laughs> I think a lot of people sort of have this impression that the whole point of maths is to generalize things, right? But I don't know, the title doesn't sound that way. Okay. I think in, well, this goes back to the point which I made a long time ago about some respects communication, the thesis is actually presents an algorithm which started life with my supervisor in the 1970s on construction of groups up to isomorphism, and which I then developed in the 1980s and turned into a very practical tool to actually use, and it's a tool which is still widely used. And we decided to apply it to the groups of order 256. And there was method in this madness in the sense that the problem of classifying groups of order 256 was raised by Alan Turing back in the 1940s. In one of his papers on computation and the potential impact of algorithms on society broadly, 
he discusses the question of group enumeration. He discusses the question of classification. And in a remarks he makes, he discusses the question of, we could hope that computers will be able to classify the groups of order 256. This was in the 1940s at a point when the notion of a computer was somewhat different. In the early 1950s, M.H.A. Newman, who was then professor at Manchester, who was not to be confused with Mike Newman, who was my PhD supervisor, he just happened to have the same name, no more than that. M.H.J. Newman gave a lecture in 1951 at the inauguration of the first computer at the University of Manchester, in which he actually discusses the classification of the groups of order 256 by random techniques, by trying to generate randomly groups of order 256 and hoping to hit most of them. It was those two things which motivated, in some sense, our decision to focus as an application of the algorithm for constructing groups on actually doing the classification of order 256, because almost 40 years later, there was no classification for the groups of order up to 64 had been classified back in the 1940s. And beyond that, there was nothing further, essentially, in existence. And so in some sense, we took the view that if our algorithms were good, then we should be able to complete classification of a large number of distinct objects. We knew that there were a large number of groups of order 256, and we regarded it as a challenge. And then the question of the title, in some sense a marketing device, in some sense an actual conscious decision. It's much easier for people to deal with a title like that, which says there are 56,092 groups of order 256, than it is to say there is an algorithm which, given as input P and N and D, can construct the degenerated groups of order P to the N. And, by the way, we applied it to groups of order 256. I can tell you the mileage out of the first statement is much greater than the mileage out of the second statement. And if you want to actually have people interested in what you do mathematically, it comes back to the fact that I believe I'm a salesman. I believe that I'm trying to sell mathematics and I'm trying to sell what I do. And to that extent, I don't make many apologies. I was perhaps a little bit tired by the time that people stopped referring to me as Mr. Two Groups, uh, because for about five years post my PhD, people knew about my PhD thesis precisely because of 256. They didn't know, and many of them still don't know, that there's an algorithm there which actually solves the problem. They just regard it as a solution for 256. And so many people would write to me on questions related to 256. I still get enormous amounts of correspondence from many people on, you know, does there exist a group which has this property? I'm very relaxed about it. It helped my career immensely. It meant that a lot of people got to know who I was who otherwise wouldn't have got to know me. And if I was to give some advice to young people, it would be think about what you're doing. Think about how to present it. Think about how to sell it. I, I'm not talking about trying to be flaky. I'm talking about be serious about what you're doing, but also think about how to present it, how to package it in a way which works. If you have theorems which come with 17 different qualifiers on them and 
nobody has an idea whether there's an example of the phenomenon you're discussing in your theorem. That's a pretty bad situation. And there was a period in the 80s and 90s when some people in group theory were doing stuff which got close to that point, where the level of qualifier on work gets to the point where you're not sure that there's any example other than a group of order six which exhibits the phenomenon. And I think you do good work and you think about how to remove the multiple layers of indirection of that work so that people can actually hear about what it is you do. So I, I don't make too many apologies for the fact that the thesis actually contains an algorithm which remains widely used and has picked up lots and lots of applications over the last 40 years. But the title of the thesis is on the application which was most likely to grab attention. That's really interesting because I don't know if this is subconscious or not, but I've always felt like if I say have a talk or a paper with a very simple title, I feel like that's not going to come across as good as if it had a title that was a bit more complicated and had a more, you know, was a bit more technical. Yeah, I never thought of it that way. Well, I think you're incorrect. I think that titles which are straightforward, I mean, for example, I have a paper which says tensor products are projective geometries from the 1990s. The title actually is an abstract for the paper. And that would remain my view. If the title is a short, snappy title, people may actually bother to look at the paper. Whereas if they don't understand the words in the title, why should they bother to look at anything else? In particular, in a world where people are having no end of information just flashed in front of their eyes, why pull up a PDF file to look at it unless it at least attempts to attract you via the title and probably more critically the abstract, that these things should be thought about, they should be well-written, and there are good rules for how to present the material, and people should take those on board. So I guess your work, obviously, throughout your career is not just 256. Like When I had a look at your publication and also a lot of other articles about you, I think one common theme in your work is abstraction, despite the PhD title not exactly reflecting that. I don't know. Would you agree with that? I would say that the dominant theme in my work is not so much abstraction for the sake of abstraction, but that indeed I am working with abstract objects. But I want to develop an understanding of those abstract objects. And I often find that computation, either at the level of developing new algorithms to work with the object, or by applying existing algorithms, that that computation gives me insight into the structure of the objects. I think another thing which I like is as much as possible to be able to deal with a class of objects. I'm not that excited about an individual case of something. I, I mean, I've done calculations where, you know, somebody says, what can you find out about this group? And that's fine. I mean, I will do those computations and I will get often get complete insight into the structure of that object. But I'm also interested in having techniques which are generally applicable. So when I talk about an algorithm, talking about 
often I really do want to have a resulting mathematical approach to studying the question more broadly. And I'm interested in how do I tie this down into something very practical, which I can implement on a machine. I am among a small handful of people working in aspects of group theory who actually get their hands very dirty by actually implementing software, who develop software, make it available. A lot of my software is available via Magma and is used pretty widely. There is a very big difference in the discipline between putting together material for use by others and material which is just for you to play with. I've done a lot of the latter, sorry, the former. I've done a lot of development of algorithms, which I want to be able to apply perhaps in my first instance to something which very local to me, but which I also want to make available to the wider community so that they can use them. And that discipline of trying to come up with a general broad way of doing things is something which has underpinned my work. But I I mean, in the last 30 years, I've worked on a variety of projects. One of the very significant projects I've been involved in is on aspects of matrix groups where you're given a bunch of matrices with entries from a finite field or an infinite field. So they're integral matrices or matrices defined over a finite field. I want to know something about the group which they generate. And a bunch of us have worked on aspects of that topic for pretty much since the early 90s. And it has been an interesting case study of how, if you persist and you bring a lot of mathematics and a lot of ingenuity and a lot of perseverance to projects and a lot of engagement by very smart people, that you can actually make very significant breakthroughs. Things which we can do 30 years later were regarded by the experts in the early 1990s as being impossible. One which undergraduates would understand is if you take a matrix with entries from a finite field and you ask, what's the order of that matrix? What's the smallest power of that matrix which equals the identity? People didn't believe that you could ever hope to answer that question by anything other than enumerating powers of the matrix. So you take your matrix A, then you calculate A squared, then you calculate A cubed, and you keep going until you hit the identity. And the problem with that approach is that there are matrices which are very, very large order. And so when I say you'll never hit the identity, I really mean in 10,000 years of CPU time, you will not find the order of the matrix by that approach. And so computer algebra systems in the early 90s would give up and say, but I've gone as far as 1,000 and I'm bored. I want to do something else in my life other than enumerating powers of this matrix. And so that's, for, I, that's not a problem I solved. That's a problem which one of my long-term collaborators, Charles Lee Green, and others solved in the early 90s. But what I wanted to point out was that over 30 years, I've been involved with a whole bunch of people, including many Australians, Sherwood Prager being, for example, one of those, but others also where we've worked on aspects of matrix groups and we've been able to revolutionize what could be done by a whole bunch of things. So I I think if I was looking for a, a common strand, it is that I like universality. I like to be able to deal with a big class of things at the same time. I want to be able to deal with a class of objects and I want to be able to make some contribution towards solving the problem at a general level I mean, it may be that still there is a huge universe out there which we can't touch, 
but we should be able to do more than the most trivial example. And one of my PhD advisors was Loxy Kovac at ANU. And Loxy Kovac was one of these hand calculators who were extraordinary. He could just sit there and do things which would baffle me on the occasions when I would watch him do these things. And I've always taken the maxim afterwards that if by development of an algorithm, I can't do better than Loxy Kovac, then I should just give up on the topic. Because if I cannot beat a very good hand calculator by developing a machinery, then I haven't achieved very much. And I often use it still as a maxim, as an editor, when I get a paper to decide whether or not a paper presenting a so-called algorithm where the only example they've been able to deal with is a group of order six. Well, I often take the view, well, Loxie would have been able to deal with this by hand in about three minutes. So the fact that you've managed to produce a computer program which can answer it in one minute, I don't really regard as very significant. All right. So I guess I want to end by asking you the question that we ask all of our guests at the end of the episode, which is to complete the sentence, a mathematician is someone who... Um, mathematician is somebody who can think abstractly and armed with that abstraction, attempt to solve challenging problems related to the structure. So I believe that a mathematician is somebody who can look at a problem which is given perhaps not very concretely or perhaps completely concretely and can try to identify important features of the problem, critical features, which are pertinent towards trying to develop a framework of understanding the problem. And that's pretty much what I mean by trying to abstract the problem, that you're presented with something and you're now trying to understand in what framework I can put that. And that may mean bringing abstract notions of axioms to bear on the problem. It may mean trying to develop a model for the problem. It may mean trying to connect it with other areas, be they within science or be they within mathematics. And using trying to draw these strands together, principally by identifying patterns, by identifying connections, trying to draw these strands together in such a way that he or she can actually tackle what was the original problem posed. Thank you very much to Eamon for sharing his story. To find out more about Eamon and his work, check out his webpage linked in the show notes. This episode was produced by Tiana Sang-An and myself. We'll be back soon with another interview. The Neumann Talk is a podcast produced by students and staff from the School of Mathematics and Statistics at UNSW Sydney and hosted by me, Yudi Bunyamin. Follow UNSW Maths and Stats on Facebook or Instagram to see updates on the latest episodes as well as other exciting news from our school. If you've been listening to our podcast, then we'd love to hear from you. Send me a tweet or a message on Twitter 
at Yudi underscore Bunyamin. Let us know who you are and if there's something one of the winners talked about that really resonated with you, or even if you have any questions about mathematics of your own. 